Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds, change votes, and win elections. Uh, We are joined today by Emmy Award winner and two-time Grammy nominee David Cross. Uh, He is an inventive performer, writer, and producer on stage and screen. His latest stand-up special, I'm From the Future, is hilarious. I highly recommend it. You can see it now by going to officialdavidcross.com. I told my son this morning, David, that I was going to talk to uh, Minion from Megamind, and he was duly impressed. So, And your son is 24. Yeah, <laughs> no, he is. He is. He's 24. Uh, still lives at home, which was exactly how I planned it. Yeah. Uh, that. <laughs> you never been introduced with Megamind before? Didn't know what the pivot was there? No, that's fine. I, I <laughs> like that movie. I like that. Uh, that was fun. It was a bummer that it didn't do didn't do better so that there'd be more of them. But I'm, I'm happy with that. One. See, that's the difference. And I'm glad kids like it. Well, that's you being in the business. I have no idea. I I would have thought huge blockbuster. No clue because we've watched it like oh, 5000 times. It did well. But like in that world, you have to do. I mean, I'm pulling these numbers out of my ass, but I mean, you can't gross 75 million, not even gross, but net 75 million. They're like, nah, well, maybe we'll skip another one. Well, <laughs> it's like, it has to be It's funny. It massive. didn't even occur to me like that. Yeah, there wasn't a second one. So therefore, because there's automatic sequels if things do well. I forgot about that. All right. Well, anyway, thanks for being here. Appreciate it. On to the news of the week. Well, I wanted to start with, there's some news coming out of Trump world that I think the media hasn't given enough attention to. Shocker. (laughs) Two sets of stories here. A big blow for Trump tonight. His longtime accounting firm just retracted all of the annual financial statements it prepared for him from 2011 to 2020 and cut ties with him and the Trump organization. This comes, as you know, in the middle of an ongoing civil and criminal probe into whether the former president illegally inflated the value of his assets to obtain loans or has... His former attorney, Michael Cohen, once said, merely to boost his status. That seems noteworthy. Second, there were two sets of stories out last week about document destruction in Trump world. It all started with Trump's much reported habit of ripping up documents, which would be a clear and flagrant violation of the Presidential Records Act. We now know that many of the records received by the National Archives reportedly arrived shredded, had to be taped back together. And that is if they arrived at all, because some records were apparently destroyed completely. Others were reportedly hidden away at the ex-president's private residence in Florida. According to a new nugget from New York Times' Maggie Haberman's upcoming book, which comes out actually in the fall, while President Trump was in office, staff in the White House residence periodically discovered wads of printed paper clogging a toilet and believed the president had flushed pieces of paper. And so I mention this not because... 
I think any one of these things, you know, there's so much we could learn about any of these things, right? But there seemed to be such coverage of Hillary Clinton and her emails in the 2016 election. Uh, and we can go through that data. It's pretty staggering. And these two stories seem to have come and gone. I don't see a ton of reporting outside of like the initial drop of this of the news. And, and what does that mean about our media? What does that tell us about our media? It tells us that the uh, media landscape has changed dramatically in six years. That is to say, it's gotten more beholden to the right wing and Republican Party. There's the concept of left and right media, of right wing media and left wing media. And the idea that was just kind of thoughtlessly assumed or told to people and they believe it is that there really is a left wing media and there isn't and hasn't been. And CNN was never liberal bias or left wing and MSNBC is hardly left wing. <clears throat> I mean, it's left of right wing. Uh, but that doesn't <laughs> well mean so, much. Yeah. I mean, the extremes have gone so far to the right that what appears to be centrist is still right. I mean, look, there's there's basically two national papers of record, the the Times and the Post. I mean, you could make an argument for the Wall Street Journal, but that's owned by Murdoch. And um, it's basically the Times and the Post for a country of 330 plus million Americans. We have, you know, kind of two news sources that are respected and shouldn't be. They shouldn't. They haven't earned that respect in a long time. But um, you've got that and the fact that the people who have risen within the ranks of those papers rely on their sources and they don't want to upset their sources. So that's why they equivocate. Uh, if they want to remain able to have access, they have to you know, come up with a 1,000th uh, euphemism for lying. And the fact that Maggie Haberman, amongst others, has sat on what one would consider very valuable, important information uh, so that she could save it for her book is, I mean, that tells you everything you need to know. And that's happened repeatedly. And it's it's just the chipping away of what would once out, out you know be outrageous and should be outrageous and should be concerning is just and I think that's kind of part of the plan of uh, specifically of Trump and and the right wing. Well, that's the part that gets me right. It's like it's so hard now for him to do anything that people are like aghast. Yeah, I mean the stuff that he got away with that people were willing to ignore. I mean, in in blatantly hypocritical ways. I mean, things that were not up for debate. Mm -hmm. You know. <laughs> well, just to, to put this in perspective, so the the Harvard Berkman Klein Center did a retrospective on the 2016 election just to say how much different was the coverage, and they found um, roughly four times as many Clinton-related sentences that described scandals as opposed to policies, whereas Trump-related sentences were one and a half times as likely to be about policy as scandal, right? And like, Obviously, one of those people was committing scandal more than the other. But like, even if you were to say they were on equal footing uh, in terms of their amount of scandal they contributed to American society, they weren't getting covered that way. They go through data point after data point about how different this coverage was, how much different Hillary Clinton was was covered. And I mentioned this not because the history is that important anymore, because there's nothing we can do about it, but because it seems like we're repeating this now, like we're heading into an election cycle where Trump is very likely to be on the ballot again. And it seems like the very same newsrooms are committing the exact same sins again. And I guess that what you're saying, David, is like the same people who've risen up 
in part while they're not taking responsibility for past coverage or changing the way they do it. Like their bias is not left, right. It's towards sensationalism. And I guess they figured that Hillary Clinton sensational stories sold, whereas people are bored by Trump's uh, is my guess. And if we, and, yeah, uh, yeah, look who they hired for their op, you know, in the past four years for uh, their op ed. Uh, I think they're getting rid of the term op ed, but you know, the people that they've hired, they've hired a lot of blatantly, proudly right wing conservative voices. The Times have, I'm not talking about the Post, but the New York Times. Yeah. Yeah. And I think to me, Ravi, like what this all means is what we've often talked about on the show is that there's no silver bullet. And the truth is, is that stuff like this, like, Trump flushing papers down the toilet, which, by the way, could just be like, maybe he didn't, maybe he just clogs a lot of toilets and he's the kind of guy who would just be like, no, there were papers in there. Um, but that said, like, whatever it is, I just think that we we just have to win arguments. Like, we have a tendency, I think, to get lazy and excited about scandals uh, on the other side. And the truth is, like, persuadable voters, it turns out, the ones we need to persuade don't actually care about those scandals. So we have, I think we just have to win arguments as to why they're wrong about stuff. Yeah, we're in this weird world where our scandals seem to land, but their scandals don't. Um, maybe it's just the way I feel. Like maybe it's the equivalent of thinking that the refs are always out to get you. Uh, it just Jesus feels that wearing way. a bill set. Yeah, I mean, you and I were next to each other during that game and saw the same holding penalties that weren't called, but we're not going to get into that. Uh but you know what I'm saying? It's like, I feel like there's a baked in assumption. Oh, you know, this is like the McConnell phenomenon. Like he's going to be like this crafty, you know, old sign of the Senate and whatever he does is kind of baked into people's expectations. Whereas if Democrats do stuff like that, all the process stories, there seems to be so much more of an emphasis on democratic corruption, democratic scandals, democratic process stories. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. It's really rare that I schedule an appointment with my therapist anymore where I'm like, mm, everything's fine. I'll just schedule an appointment with my therapist. And like, that's, you know, I should be doing it that way. It's like any other injury, like, don't wait until it gets really bad. Like, be preventative about it. Yeah. And I love the fact that BetterHelp makes that first step as easy as possible because often, you know, you can convince somebody or you could become convinced that you need therapy or they need therapy and they, you know, go to sign up and the preferred person you have isn't taking appointments for months or weeks ahead of time. And then something can happen in between. With BetterHelp, they offer you video, phone, or even live chat sessions. They're super easy to sign up for. And no matter where you live in the country, you could access super high quality therapy and they're much more affordable than in-person therapy. And you can get matched with somebody in under 48 hours. You can give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp Online Therapy. And Majority 54 listeners get 10% off the first month at betterhelp.com slash M54. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash M54. So the other day, I was thinking about my Helix mattress, as sometimes I do. And I was thinking, you know, before... I became like a, a full adult and started to like think about the mattress I sleep on. I realized like I was constantly sleeping on a mattress that had like a hole where my body was. And, you know, I think Helix is there to solve that problem for people. Yeah, I've legitimately had mattresses that are less comfortable than sleeping on a hardwood floor. 
But that's not Helix Sleep. And one of the things I really love about it is this quiz that you could take and it's just about two minutes and it matches your body type and your sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. I took the Helix quiz and I was matched with the Midnight Lux mattress because it has a medium feel and I sleep on my side. I love it and my sleep has gotten so much better because of it. So if you want to improve your sleep, Go to helixsleep.com slash majority54, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash majority54. That's helixsleep.com slash majority54 for up to $200 off and two free pillows. All right, well, let's talk about Canada. Uh, our neighbors to the north, starting January 28th, there have been these trucker protests. I'm sure most of our listeners are vaguely familiar about what's been going on. In a rare and aggressive move, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau invoking the Emergencies Act to crack down on anti-vaccine mandate protests. This move allows the federal government to expand measures to clear the blockades by hundreds of truckers that are disturbing residents and harming the economy. We as a people here in this convoy are standing strong. We're not moving. We've informed them if they want to take us to jail, that's going to be their alternative. In the nation's capital, this has been particularly stark and and these truckers have blocked streets. They've been keeping people up at night honking their horns. There have been shifting stories about whether this, this protests have turned violent or not, or what kind of crimes people are committing, or whether there's like what what if any right wing influence there are in these protests. But the police on the ground seem to have been slow to respond. But this week a lot of uh, there have been a lot of developments. One is that the, poli- the local police chief was fired. The second was that Trudeau uh, used for the first time in Canadian history this uh, Emergency Powers Act uh, and is using it to, quote, bring order to the streets and cut off the financial flows to these protesters. And it seems like this is uh, likely to clear the streets, but uh, these protests don't seem like they're going away either in Canada. And there's also some speculation that this is going to come to the streets of the United States. What does this mean? Like, what does this mean for us? Before we get into that, can I ask like a really dumb question, which is, I may have a really stupid perspective on this, but watching it from afar, like, doesn't it kind of seem like Canada is like really soft? Like, I mean, like we've had like all sorts of like unrest and stuff in this country. And like, they're like people parked on our lawn Am I totally missing something? Well, they're they're blocking access points and uh, you know the specific bridges to America, um, uh, so it's affecting trade and goods and well, that's and, true and, and stuff like that. I know you know there are people who rely on drugs from Canada who literally just go across the border uh, because our situation is so horrible. And they this is a real thing where people will go in to get insulin because uh, they can't afford insulin here in the in the state. So they in the numerous bridges over to Canada, they go in and they get their insulin and they come back and they're not able to do that. I know some people are uh, suffering from it. And I know some of the people who are spokespeople for, you know, who are part of the protest are saying, sorry, doesn't matter. 
So the answer is yes. It was a dumb question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, also that 90 plus percent of truckers in Canada are vaccinated. And uh, and, and if it's not clear to the audience, the the original purpose of these protests was to protest the mandates. There's a certain mandate in place that if you cross borders, you have to be vaccinated. In uh, in the States. If you're coming into the States, you have to be vaccinated. Yeah. What percentage of the truckers in America do you think are? Lower than ninety percent for yeah. sure, but but here's the thing: they're hurting. Even the National Review pointed this out. These protests are hurting working truckers in Canada because it's preventing them from crossing over and doing their jobs. Uh, but the problem is here: these trucks are parking, and you have to think about the logistics of this. It's kind of a perfect storm because trucks uh, often have a place to sleep in them, so these truckers can wait out. They can, you know, sit outside basically and protest uh, longer than a normal protester could because they can use the infrastructure of the trucks. It's really hard to tow a truck, so you have hmm. that. Okay, all right. Yeah. So they're not soft. Like yeah. I, I basically just accidentally called on Canada to bring in tanks to Tiananmen Square style. That's I don't think happens. that's what you want. I, in my opinion, after no, watching no, it's this, it's not what yeah, I want. It's... Yeah, I don't. I don't think this is. I think that I, I sympathize with how tricky it is because. I, th- I think a lot of times the protests, if you take the issue that somebody's protesting for outside of the debate and say, all right, what if we're an issue that I cared about? Like, obviously, I, I pro-vaccine. But I think, like, if you say subject matter independent, are the tactics okay? I don't think these tactics are okay, but I don't think that everybody who's engaging in these protests is using tactics that I would say cross over like some horrible line. There are certain things that are very troubling. Like there are certain people who are who are part of these protests who have super far right ideology and are displaying it. Oh, they're yeah. they're, they're white nationalists. Yeah, I mean there there are a number of people who are closely aligned with the, the origins of this thing, who or some who have just glommed onto it afterwards that are self-avowed white nationalists, like the equivalent of three percenters here. And if you go see any of the, the footage of people interviewing the protesters, or the, the people who are either part of the truckers or people who have joined them, they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. They, they're, it's they like a Jordan Klepper clip. They don't. Yeah. Just, yeah. Basically, they don't know what. Well, not, even like they're just not versed on what the whole thing's about and they you know they don't know or care that most of this is funded by right-wing americans that's where a lot of this money is coming from and that there's a reason why Rand paul would condone this and not just condone it but that was was saying like yeah bring it down here let's do this here i mean that's a senator Okay, so now that you know. now that i've gone from being like they're soft to like this seems uh concerning because that i've, I've come around what would this look like here because like now i assume it's gonna happen here yeah well i don't know i mean it's it's modeled after uh i don't know how specifically but this has happened in france a number of times where the um agricultural uh you know farmers and uh whether it's the dairy industry or whatever they would uh albeit on a smaller scale clog up the roadways with their farm equipment but this is this kind of thing is established yeah, and they, the the key here is also these are unpopular with the Canadian people, uh, but and I think people look at that and say, "All right, well, then they're not working." And I think in many ways the, the support is probably going to be 
like they're not sophisticated in their PR. There's a lot of reporting that these guys are coordinating from, you know, on high with other sort of right wing activists, et cetera. But there was a press conference this week where they basically got up in front of the press, were asked a few tough questions and threw a fit. So these aren't like the most sophisticated people. And that's not going down well in Canada. And so their support isn't necessarily going up. But as you've been around the block politically enough to know that sometimes just because they're not popular doesn't mean that Trudeau benefits from this either, because it looks like he's presiding over chaos. And I think that's the playbook for the U.S. is to say, all right, another problem we could put at Biden's doorstep to say, all right, there's, you know, there's not just inflation, there's not just COVID, but we're now having unrest and streets clogged here. And so even though the American people might not be sympathetic to those protesters in the U.S., they might still blame Biden. And the right is giddy about this. Tucker Carlson is selling T-shirts uh, that are Trucker Carlson T-shirts. And oh, I'm, I'm, I'm hard pressed to imagine him sending that money to the actual truckers. No. And uh, also for that, that guy to align himself with any kind of uh, blue collar job is a laugh. Yeah. He used to wear a bow tie. Yeah, he did yeah. stop wearing the bow tie, didn't he? Yeah, I miss that version of the Republican Party, the bow tie. Well, to close the book on this, like, I think, well, Jason, you've long heard me talk about this, but there's this transition of the Republican Party from the sort of country club alliance with the evangelicals, which they've maintained those voters, but now they've added this sort of UFC bar stool types. And I think this is part of it. You have this weird phenomenon now of some of these like Ted Cruz types who've probably never picked up a tool in their life and wouldn't know how to drive a truck uh, if you gave them days to figure it out are now saying they're for the common man. And this is where I want to end this conversation for us is to talk about, well, how is it that we're in this situation now where they continually seem to successfully argue that they're for the common person? And I think like as we head to 2022, we have got to figure out as a Democratic Party how to get in between this Republican Party and this narrative that they're for the common person, because obviously they're full of shit on this. Uh, but we're not as effective as we could be in getting in the middle but of that, it. That goes back to Reagan and Karl Rove kind of perfected the idea of we just need one wedge issue. We need one, you know, the more the better, but uh, let's get a good wedge issue. I mean, the Virginia governor's race turned on this completely fabricated CRT thing, and now they got their guy in the off in office. So you need one. I continue to maintain that, like, if it's Ted Cruz, that what you got to do is do things like throw him a football on live television. Like, that, that's, <laughs> that's like the, you know. Because <laughs> can you imagine Ted Cruz catching a football, like, in a, in a debate in Texas? Like, Dude, I just somehow think he end of beat, and this is to the eternal shame of Jimmy Kimmel, he I somehow beat. I talked to Kimmel about that. He was like, he fouled a lot, and I was a gentleman about it. Yeah, well, that's, that's a good you metaphor know. for our politics. I know, uh, isn't it? It's actually a perfect place to land this. Well, Jason, I traveled to Central Valley, California this past weekend to go to Kelly Slater's Surf Ranch, which is like this crazy wave that's created by a train. And honestly, it was one of the most physically exhausting things I've ever done in my life. But when I came back to New York, I wasn't sore. Can you guess why? I'm going to go with Athletic Greens. That's right. 
Listener, we've been telling you about Athletic Greens for a long time, and right now it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the flu and cold season. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially because we're still in the middle of the winter. We got a couple months left of it, and just one scoop and a cup of water every day is all you need. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five of those travel packs. And all you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com majority. Again, that's athleticgreens.com majority to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. What would you do if you didn't have high interest loans or credit card debt? Through Upstart, you can pay off your existing debt quickly with a personal loan so you could tackle your next big financial goal. And so whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high interest debt, or funding personal expenses, over a million people have used Upstart to get one fixed monthly payment with a clear payoff date. Upstart knows you're more than just your credit score. So rather than looking at your credit score alone, Upstart's model considers other factors like your income, employment, and other information provided in your loan application to find you a smarter rate for your loan. You can check your rate without impacting your credit score in just five minutes for loans between $1,000 to $50,000. You can even receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash majority54. That's upstart.com slash majority54. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know that we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash majority54. Let's talk about comedy. So, David, we're excited to have you on because Jason is funny. I'm not, but I'm like a fan of comedians. And we've I'm, long like, been... I'm funny-ish. Yeah. But when I'm around people who are professionally funny, I remember that I'm funny for a politician. Yeah. No, I thought you were gonna you were gonna interject and say, no, you're actually funny, but thanks for being oh, honest. Well, you, yeah, no, no, yeah, you yeah, are yeah. you have you have your moments. Yeah. You have your uh, moments. So David, we want to start with just a sense of like, what is the role? I know this is a general question, but I think about this in the current state of our politics is like, what's the role of comedy in our politics? Because I've heard often the claim that Republicans are funnier than Democrats uh, and have a sort of a sense of irony at times or comedic timing that we don't have. Sometimes it's like mean spirited humor, like Trump. And that Democrats are kind of humorless and more constantly being like the serious people who are trying to remind people of the serious problems, which is admirable, but sometimes maybe not effective, according to critics. Like, what do you see as the role of comedy in this modern era when the issues are so serious? Well, the issues are always serious, but um, I think, first of all, comedy is a, is a there's a big umbrella and <clears throat> some of it has nothing to do with politics, uh, nor should it. But um if you are going to do some stand-up that engages in a political discussion or theories, or if you're talking about sketch or even like a, a full movie like uh, Don't Look Up, uh, the role is to uh, the first and foremost, you know, you, you got to be funny. You know, you're hope, hopefully you're enlightening the audience and, and make maybe they can see a complex issue reduced to kind of a simpler idea which can help clarify something. We just went, teach us what a joke is, David. And, and <laughs> well, like, 
It's like, explain joke. Well, Jason, I think that he, like, it's a good tee up to Ann Richards, right? The former Texas governor. And Jason, I'll send you this before this podcast. But she was, in my opinion, the funniest politician I've ever seen. And she did what Dave was talking about, which is take a complicated idea at times and get beyond a sort of platitude, right? She said, you know, after all, Ginger Rogers had to do everything Fred Astaire did, but she had to do it backwards in high heels, right? She could have said, you know, we have to deal with inequality, or what, or used mm-hmm. an overused metaphor, uh, at least in today's terms, like a glass ceiling. But she did it in such a memorable way that in 30, 40 years later, we're still talking about it. Or she talked about George W. Bush and said he can't help it. He was born with a silver foot in his mouth. Like, she was able to consistently find memorable ways to make political arguments. And she She's the one who, uh, I believe, coined... Born he on third base or something and thought he yes. hit a triple. I thought he hit a yeah, triple, yeah. 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 That and my my favorite one about W was she said, well, he's missing his Herbert. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like she just was really funny. Completely reduced him. You know, just he's missing his Herbert. Um, I think she's so, the yeah. best we've ever had. But what I like about her is that she talks about serious things and Lord knows the kind of determination and strength she would have have had to get that position she had, especially back then. And she had a sort of, she was always winking at the public and, and no matter what challenges she was facing behind the scenes, always looked like she was having a good time of it, you know? And that's what I love about her is that she, you know, you know, I know a lot of people hate Ram, but Ram Emanuel, you know, he makes me laugh all the time, you know, like he's, you know, there was this, you know, he, this tweet about where he's essentially like saying, you know, all you need to succeed in politics is a bucket of money and, you know, an idiot running against you and then dreams come true or something like that. It's like such such brutal honesty, you know? But I guess your point, David, is like, it has to be true. Like it has to illuminate a truth to be yeah, funny. And, and, and hopefully you're not ideally not punching down and punching up. All right, let me ask you about that. Like the not punching down, not punching up. So like, you know, I watched your special, uh, your new one. It was great. And what I was interested as one thing that struck me as I watched it, because, you know, I think you and I've talked about this before that I'm, I'm a, like my wife and I are stand up comedy nerds, right? Like that's, we listen to the podcasts that like talk about stand up. You know, I, I don't know why neither of us are stand, but like, it's really interesting to us. And so I've, I've listened to a ton of comedians uh, give interviews over the last year where they're asked, okay, when you come back after, you know, when we're performing again, do you have a bunch of pandemic humor that is stored up? And almost all of them are like, no, I'm not going to do that. Like, but what's interesting is, and it, and it worked the way you did it, but like you dove right into it. Like your, like your first, I'd say half is really like, it's clearly stuff that you were sitting around irritated about, you know, during the pandemic. And I'm just curious, like you went ahead and and went after what is ultimately a political topic that a lot of, a lot of comedians have calculated. People are tired of hearing about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's for them. They, they know themselves and their audience better than I do. And I know myself and my audience better than anybody else. And, uh, you know, that set, you know, the whole the the show is not was not like written down by my, you know, in isolation during a pandemic. And then I went out and did it. I mean, that was was all worked out. And the way I work material out is very, you know, um, extemporaneously. And I just kind of riff and I bring notes up and then I tape my sets and then I figure out what worked and what didn't work. And here's an idea. And this angle didn't work. So I need another angle. And and this is. So this was um, after not being able to do stand-up for a year and a half. Uh, this was the result of I think uh, my first set 
back was I want to say like June 18th or something like that. So and then I and that special was shot on November 7th and 8th. That was happening at the time. Most of it doesn't necessarily speak to oh, here's what it's like being in a pandemic. It really speaks to what we all had to deal with, everybody, every single uh, person had to deal with in the end of the second year of a pandemic. And also, uh, it's important to note that I am uh, aware that I live in a bubble. I live in New York. Um, I kind of addressed that in there. I know that you know we were able to enjoy things without killing each other because we just sort of followed the rules of, you know, for the most part, wearing masks uh, and or getting vaccinated when the vaccine became available. But because of that, we were able to kind of have a sense of normalcy and all the anger and awfulness that was coming out from around the country were just people who were upset that they had to wear a mask. And um, it's like, if you just wear a mask for a little bit, we'll be, we can do all the things you want to do. And you, you, can, you can take it off when you're at home. And so it was, it wasn't simply like, this is fucked, huh? Isn't this crazy? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and we have to do it. But it was the result of like, we still are dealing with this, not so much in New York, you know, and, and it also came from having to cancel my tour. Um, which was, which is easily the most disappointing thing I've done professionally, uh, or had to do. So that's where a lot of that material came from. What got me about it, what was interesting is like, you were just mentioning like about not punching down and stuff like you were really, it's interesting how careful you are in it because you talk about the bubble, like you're very aware, like you're standing on a stage in Brooklyn talking to an audience that's all vaccinated and you're talking to them about you know, people who are from other places. It's really interesting to watch. You consistently go right up to the line and like play with the line of punching down. Well, that's that's it's, my thing. <laughs> it's, yeah. Well, of course. Yeah. And, but it's like, but the reason that I think so many comics have decided, like, I'm not, I think there's a couple of reasons, right? Like why they're not wanting to do pan, any humor related to the pandemic is one, unlike you, they, they think of it as humor related to the pandemic and you approach it as talking about the pandemic as a way to talk about what the hell is happening in American society. Right. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. Um, and then the other part is like, they're really, there are like, there are so few jokes left to do that aren't punching down. And it was just really interesting to watch you find a lot of jokes that weren't punching down, but played with the line. And uh, anyway, I just, this is becoming like a Chris, a Chris Farley style. Like remember that time. Um, but I, I enjoyed, that's what I enjoyed in it, uh, in that part. Well, good. So. I mean, that's, that's why I put it out there because, uh, and I, you know, self-distributing it too. It's, it's only available on my website, officialdavidcross.com. <laughs> well um, and, you know, because I wanted to, wanted it to get out there now. I shot that in November and it's out three months later. So that was part of it. And, um, and I think it's very of the moment, you know, and, and will be for the next couple months and hopefully not <laughs> much longer after that. Although I should say there's plenty of material that has nothing to do with the pandemic or anything topical. Um, there's plenty of other if stuff. If you've downloaded this episode in June, cause you're just going back through still super topical. I mean, you know, I, I say that, you know, anyway, it's still the future, but all right. So, uh, last question on this, uh, is Ravi and I have gone back and forth often talking about the question of is Trump funny? And here's, here's how I think about this. 
When Trump was running in 2016 in the primary and we never thought he'd be president, mm -hmm. he was cracking me up. Like when he yeah. when he was saying stuff that was calling out the other Republicans and you're like, finally, somebody said that to them. It was funny. And then he like became for real and then he became president. And it wasn't funny anymore. And what I'm wondering is, is it just like, oh, it got real. And that's why it's not funny, because now I think of him and I'm like, the guy is not funny. People think he's funny, but he's not funny. So I guess which version of me was right. What do you is he funny? I mean, that's the way to view it, too. I mean, it, in hindsight, no, he's not funny. But uh, <laughs> yeah. at the time when we we uh, had more faith in the American public, but it was funny and like it was pathetic, too. It wasn't like funny. Ha ha. He's your funny friend who's making fun of John Kasich and uh, and you know, Rubio, Ted Cruz. Yeah. And uh, it was. Uh, and also he was showing how what ineffective, stodgy political tools they were. And that's, you know, where you're like, Kai, you know, he just showed the 50th reason why Ted Cruz is just a soulless husk. And um, it was harmless. It was almost like, good, you know, uh, it, there we didn't know. And then when you when you feed that personality with that kind of ego and um, I mean, he's he's easily the most narcissistic figure I've ever listened to ever. There's, I mean, there are there are fictional characters that don't come close to he's just pure narcissism. So that's not funny. <laughs> well, yeah. And it's also like interesting because he violates every traditional rule of like what allows a politician to be funny, which is I once had like a politician say to me who was mentoring me like a statewide politician when I was running statewide say to me like, Jason, you have a good wit you need to turn it on yourself. Like you're in politics. If you want to be funny, you have to be self-deprecating. It's kind of the only way you're allowed to do it. And like the dude has never said a self-deprecating thing ever. It's unbelievable. Not, not, I mean, he wouldn't, I can't remember what the interview was. It was when uh, they were, maybe he had just won the primary. I don't know, but they did that very common question you know, what's one thing about yourself you change? There's some variation on that. What's something you regret or what's some what's something you change? And then they know in advance they're going to ask that. And it's designed to show some sort of um, contriteness or recrimination about something where you weren't sensitive or whatever, however they want to use it to their advantage. And Trump was like, uh, he thought about it for a half sec. was like, I have no, I didn't, I haven't done anything wrong. I, I wouldn't change anything. Yeah, I, I, I don't understand I feel, the question. I've never felt, I've never felt bad about yeah. something before. So, you know, why did somebody say something? Yeah. <laughs> 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 All right. Before we go to uh, Road to the Midterms, again, you can get "I'm from the Future" uh, at officialdavidcross.com, and I highly recommend it. Particularly, like. Like, don't, the other advice I'll give you if you're going to download it uh, is, or stream it, whatever the term is, don't like turn it on and then go like make your popcorn and be in the other room. Like you, you want, you want to get the first 90 seconds for sure. Oh yeah. That's the, that's my favorite opening ever. I, I figured it was it, like, I watched it and I was just like, holy shit. Like, <laughs> I mean, it was fun to do. It was the, it was. What were the faces was... in the crowd like while you were. Well, you know, it's it's that kind of thing. I obviously don't want to give anything away, but it's really tricky to make to be like, how hard am I going to do this? How long am I going to go this way? And you, <laughs> you, you want to get to 
you want to get to the point where people are like, what, what the fuck is he, where's he going with this? How is this going to, how is this possibly going to end in a good way? And also why, like, why is he talking? Why is this the opening? And, uh, yeah, it was fun. There were, there were, I really regret that I wasn't able to do that in other parts of the country. Oh my God. That would you, yeah, no. Anyway, so hopefully that's a good enough teaser. Now with that said, for grabbing oil road to the midterms, David, feel free to throw out a race that, that you're watching. I'm watching the white race. I think they <laughs> have been underserved and I really think this is going to be their year. I think whites are going to make a, a comeback. Nobody's been talking about them. Um, All right. No, this has I, been grabbing or and uh, <laughs> No, the rate. I mean, I guess what I'm I'm more invested in is uh, Stacey Abrams. Uh, I'm from Georgia. My family, uh, with the exception of one sister, everybody else is still in Georgia. I'm back there quite often. You know, I I want to see it keep trending in the blue direction. Um, and I, you know, it's an uphill battle because they're up against uh, people who don't play fairly, um, but. I have hope and confidence, and so obviously the Senate races and, um, you know, Stacey Abrams. That's the one I'm really, outside of my own area, uh, checking the most. No, it's a great example of, like, uh, our sort of theme of Road to the Midterms is stuff that where democracy is, like, it's the front line of democracy. And, like, Stacey winning that governor's race, when you think about 2024, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and, I mean, it's it's huge. So, all right. Hey, man, thanks for doing this. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. As always, we're looking for listeners who want to speak to us on the show. Uh, leave us a voicemail if you're interested. It's 508-687-2589. 508-687-2589. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. David is at David Cross with three S's at the end on Twitter. And our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch, Edie Allard, and Desua Agbenayo. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman, and special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.